Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I wanted to talk to you today. Do you use a password manager? That's a question for you. I've been using a password manager for just a little bit of time. There's a few out there. I think there's uh, there's like what is it like the file vault or like the, the there's some, there's a there's like there's a whole system in the Macintosh program. I bet that probably works. There's a one password, which uh, does like a, a lot of the, the file uh, or the password management for you. And then the one that I use is LastPass, which I've been using for a while now. And uh, I think it works pretty well. There's a lot of password generation that it can do if you're interested in trying to get some heavy top secret hashed password that you can put in there, have remembered specific to each of those sites. And then you use like a master password and LastPass, like one that you will remember. And then it gives you access to these uh, secure tokens that you use to apply your hashed password to the site that you're trying to log into. It opens up some vulnerabilities and security depending on how secure you keep that that front door to your security system. But it really does provide you some opportunities to go back in and change passwords to sites or understand what the passwords were that you did when you managed them. So definitely something to keep in mind. Keep in mind a password manager. I don't know. Interesting stuff out there. There's a little debate about, do you want a password manager? Do you want hard to remember passwords? Do you want an easy to remember password that you keep super secret? All these little variances and nuances and security in the digital age. It'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. But right now, one of the leading trends is using a password manager. So check it out. You can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. Uh, really trying to do a lot of scouting stuff, which I've enjoyed too. Doing some scouting stuff through the summertime has been pretty cool uh, where I'm really trying to go through some of these back roads. I'm trying to like uh, mark spots on the map where there's good campsites, uh, which I hadn't really I've done before. You know, there's a lot of places I've driven, a lot of, uh, a lot of roads I've been on, and uh, uh, especially, you know, like backcountry roads, two forest service roads, BLM roads. And I know a lot of good dispersed camping areas. And really, I understand the context of how to find those areas so much better now that I'm older than when I was young. I mean, when I was young, and I'd go camping with my dad. You know, we'd go out to Eastern Oregon. We'd find some spots. And they had known about those spots since, you know, he was a kid. And he was going over there and hunting camps and stuff with his grandpa. Um, so it's cool for me to get to go over to those same spots and get to check out that area and stuff. But I think there's been, uh, or at least when I was a kid, I didn't really understand the, the land uh, like the public land rights that you have and, and really how those are organized, like how public lands are organized and what you can do on them and, and sort of how it operates. I didn't really understand the difference between um, national forest land and BLM land or national park land and state park land or wilderness areas, national wildlife refuge areas. Man, there's just so many different distinctions of, of different things. And then also just private property. So I, I didn't really have a, a clear recollection of any of those things. And really a lot of time when it's public land, you can go on it, but there's some things you can't do on it. Like either maybe hunt in some circumstances, uh, like a, like a national park or 
I think you can't discharge a firearm inside a national park, but for specifically permitted events, maybe probably uh, national wildlife refuges, I think those hunting opportunities are are limited also. Though you can still do some things in, in those areas. I think you have to get permitted and uh, you have to draw a tag for that location, I think is what it is. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's kind of interesting sort of learning about that, learning how these things go and, and uh, also finally getting some maps that you can use that you can kind of trust better while you're in the back country. I think that's something that's really helped uh, me kind of understand where I can go and what I can do. And I don't, I mean, I've had those map books, you know, like that, that 50 page or hundred page book of Oregon. And, you know, every, every page is a 25 mile map of that area. It was always super useful how they kind of grid out everything and show you the, you know, the mile by mile marking and the, the topography of the area, the different little roads and stuff. But even those roads, those map makers still got things wrong. I remember too, you know, back in like, was it 2004? I think we were out in an area in southern Oregon near the Nevada border. What is it, Drew's Reservoir? Somewhere south of Gearheart Mountain. And I remember we were on some some little some little road. I don't even know if it was if it was a, a national forest area. I think it was just is in between private and public lands as it kind of uh, jumps back and forth in those uh, pretty remote areas. All of it is just remote desert and forest and sagebrush and juniper um, but some of it goes into like ranch land that's more managed and some of it cuts back into blm land so it's, uh, as those little roads sort of meander through it uh, but i remember being out there and, and noticing that the map on the page was just totally different than the map or than you know the real world ground truth of where the road went and i thought oh whoa yeah you can't really trust the maps to show you the information that you want to see uh, when you need it other times too you know you'll see like a, oh hey like it shows there's a road right here good deal we'll take that road well you know it shows it it's on the map so you cut down there you get on the road and then it's washed out like crazy or it's super bumpy and like uh and just a terrible ride and, but it's the same green roads the same label the same marking as the road next to it that was graded and uh and uh I don't know what, it's not paved right it's it's graded gravel they put more gravel down, I think is what I'm trying to say. They've, uh, they've made it an easier going road to, to drive on. But then you get those washboard uh, sections out there. I don't know if you guys have been on that where you're driving around in the Forest Service roads and those gravel roads. And I think it's a natural process of erosion that occurs that creates these waves in the material. You know, as I think as the rainwater comes down, um, it sort of naturally over time generates these, uh, these little ripples and uh, that's the washboard effect that you get when you're driving. That's also the thing that kind of uh, kicks your car sideways when you're, uh, you're going a little too fast on a gravel road. That's what I started doing today. I think I kicked it pretty hard side. Or, you know, like, uh, it, it, was, it was pretty loose on the traction, and it was starting to tip sideways in my truck. And so I slowed down and threw it into four-wheel drive after that uh, and uh, was able to cruise around out here pretty freely. Um, but... Yeah, I wanted to talk on this podcast about hanging out in the Fremont National Forest, and I just got finished uh, with a huge thunderstorm that came through. It just really finished uh, raining a little bit ago. Uh, it kind of, uh, I think when I arrived here today at this meadow, it was still a few hours before sunset, so I walked around and uh, kind of went along the perimeter of the meadow, and then uh, and then I noticed that, you know, I mean, it's cloudy. Uh, it's It's been kind of cloudy today, and there's been thunderheads that have been uh, building up over the location that I've been. Ever since I, I kind of came over the pass of the Cascades, I've been in uh, like a, a pretty solid string of, uh, of thunderheads that have sort of 
coalesced into a uh, big mass over the Cascades. Some of it here over the, the Fremont National Forest, whatever mountains these are that I'm in. And, uh, and yeah, it seems like this section of Eastern Oregon was getting hit with a good thunder, a good summer August thunderstorm today, which was kind of fun to sit through and go through. It was cool. It, uh, I got rained on pretty hard earlier when I was driving over. And I thought I'd, I'd get out here and be a little bit more free of it, but it seemed like that storm kind of drifted over this way and then was sort of uh, drifting north from here. And, uh, and yeah, it was a, a new system, but man, there was just a bunch of lightning that was coming through and huge cracks of thunder, just big, deep rumbles. I haven't heard thunder like that in, in years and years, probably, you know, where it just kind of stays and like hangs and rolls for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, it seems like, you know, where you just really count like, whoa, is, can it really still be just cracking and rumbling and rolling? And, uh, and there was enough activity, enough lightning activity that was going on there where you, you'd hear thunder. I mean, it was almost a, like 45 minutes there where there was just a, a crack and a roll of thunder uh, almost continuously. Like it, it was uh, it was pretty intense. It's, it's, it's really, I think, one of the more strong lightning storms I've been in in a while. But, uh, but that's sort of how it goes out here when you're at these higher elevations. I think I'm floating around up in the uh, 5,100 feet or so above sea level. And so it just means I'm, I'm up in the mountains where these, uh, these thunderstorms get started. You know, they get there, they get there. I think that's where they, they all kind of coalesce over these big mountaintops and then float over in the hot weather. I don't really understand the weather enough to say I know how a thunderstorm starts or doesn't start. Now I've just gotten cold enough. I'm trying to throw a jacket on. I know. You got to live through it. I'm really camping. It's been good. But I'm going to be out here for uh, two nights, I think, is what I'm going to do. And then tomorrow I'll, I'll cruise out and uh, I'll try and hit some of these forest service roads for a bit, drive around, do some exploring, mark a couple spots on the map as I'm, uh, as I'm cruising around. I think that'll be, uh, that'll be a good time. But, uh, but, yeah, I haven't been out here before. I think I've heard of a couple friends that have been out in this area that have done some I think they did a couple scouting trips for a hunting trip that they were going on in the fall. I think this is an area where, where one of my friends goes. I think they try and draw a tag for not this area. I think it's a drainage over from here. But I think uh, I've heard about this area a couple times from uh, from people talking about it. Um, so, yeah, it's cool. It's a cool spot. I was out taking pictures earlier, taking some photographs. I've been working mostly uh, probably for almost a year and a half now. Um I've been working a lot with this uh, uh, 17 to 40 millimeter wide angle Canon lens. And it's a pretty inexpensive lens. I think you can get it for like 400 bucks, maybe a little less if you're lucky and you get it on a sale time. Sometimes in the fall, as we're kind of ramping down toward, um, toward Thanksgiving, I think you can get some good deals on it. But that's yeah, it's sort of in the, the, the $400 range. I think sometimes maybe it's more around five or something. But I picked it up a couple years ago when I was starting to do um, some uh, real estate photography. Or, well, I was working for Airbnb for a while uh, where they had hired me as a photographer to go into these uh, Airbnb Plus listings and uh, get a new set of photographs. That was interesting, kind of learning about how specific they wanted all those uh, those photographs in this, this really specific uh, art style and, um, and you know, format of it. And that was fine. It was interesting to do for a while. But uh, but what was cool is so I picked up that lens to to get in and, and do that work. Um, but really, after that, I've been appreciating how, how much I can do with that wide angle lens. And then you know, forty millimeters isn't way different than fifty millimeters. It's it's certainly different uh, for the effects of portraits and stuff. But when I'm out here doing 
landscape stuff and I'm trying to uh, take pictures of uh, a lot of this stuff is kind of sketch photos too where I'm sort of going around in midday I'm taking some photos of some different things I want some camp photos in my truck and my, my little cooler setup in the back here um, and uh, so all that's been good in addition to that the uh, the astrophotography stuff that I can do with it is pretty cool because it drops down to the 17 millimeters uh, it's an autofocus lens it's a sealed lens it's uh it's pretty it's it's pretty good in most ways. And I've really noticed over time that I'm not as, uh, as absolute of a mandate for me to be shooting at a really wide open, uh, F stop. You know, if I'm, I'm shooting at a wide open aperture, almost all of my photos early on were at 1.8 or, or 2.0 or 2.8 or something. And, uh, I would do that really because I, I was trying to, I was really trying to get, because I didn't have very many lenses. I was really trying to get as much effect out of that bouquet, out of that soft background as I could. Um, so I was really trying to lean into that and get some photos with it. And I noticed with my camera and equipment at the time that it just, uh, it just looked better. It just did look better when it was at, you know, F one eight. I think I just had that nifty 50 Nikon, uh, 50 millimeter for the longest time. That's what I did, did my early trips on and, uh, did a lot of my portfolio building stuff on that, but uh, but uh, I've got a different 50 millimeter lens with me now. I've got it on my film camera in my bag right now, which I, I need to take out too. And I'm trying to finish a roll of uh, Ektar film. It's been on there for a while, and I've enjoyed shooting it. It's cool. It's a it's a new Canon camera to me, at least. I got it used on Keh and uh, spent I don't know 35 bucks on it, 10 bucks to ship it. And uh, it takes a weird battery, too. It's one of those 90s film cameras, and it has this weird, it almost looks like a battery pack. This, it's like two, it's almost like two double A's, if they were a little fatter, that are bonded together in this little plastic pack. And then you pop that in there and uh, shoot for a little while, I guess. And it, it runs a meter okay. So I'm, uh, I'm getting by with it. But uh, I've noticed with the film camera stuff, it's, it's fun to have an awesome film camera. It'd be cool to have a Leica and all the lenses I wanted, but... Uh, a lot of the time with that, you know, I have the, I have the good lenses. I have this this newer, uh, like, Canon L-glass that I get to shoot through. And uh, for film photos and for the variety of, of image or the variety of lenses I have, you know, I can, I can do telephoto, I can do prime, I can do really wide angle, all with the modern digital Canon lenses that have, you know, chips in them that, that read well, that meter well, uh, that make contact with the, or that send information back and forth or at least from the lens to the camera, I think. Is that how it works? That works in the autofocus stuff for the digital camera. This is, di this is autofocus, so yeah. It's an autofocus digital camera. It's sending information back, it's working, yeah. That makes sense, yeah. So it's, uh, it's cool, like uh, that's something I didn't really have available to me for a long time. You know, I think when I've, uh, probably on this podcast, if you go way back in the archives, I'm talking a lot about film with uh, a Nikon F4. You know, I mean, that just had autofocus. That was the, the first camera, like 88, to, to get autofocus, period. Um, so it's cool to have that in a more flexible way now. But uh, what I remember talking about in the past a lot was that I had, like, uh, limited options with glass a lot of the time. I didn't really always have the lenses that I would have preferred. And so I've kind of made a collection of that now with this Canon stuff. I've got a Canon camera, and so I can throw all those lenses on and have that same flexibility that I have with my digital set, um, but just with this uh, this film body that I get to shoot a roll through. So I kind of save the film stuff for when it's a thing that I want. But uh, what I've noticed, though, for a little while is that uh, I miss a lot of those moments, and I end up just uh, having the the, the, the norm, you know, the regular digital camera with me with uh, a bunch of my other gear. Um, when I've been going out, I've been trying to, to kind of just take the camera with me and then I'll leave the bigger bag uh, back at the truck 
so that I'm not really carrying as much stuff with me. I've also started carrying, um, like when I'm out here in the woods and stuff, I'm carrying a binocular harness with me, uh, which is kind of cool. You can get them in different sizes, but uh, it's sort of like if you imagine like a backpack, but uh, what they do is they strap onto the front, so it's right on your chest. And uh, what you can do is fill, is put like a, a pair of binoculars in there so you can pull them out and then scout around with your binoculars, do some glassing, and then pop them back into your uh, into your harness and then kind of carry on with whatever you want to do. But if you leave that empty without the um, without the binoculars, if you have a smaller camera rig, probably like a mirrorless or a Sony camera, you know, like one of those Sony A6000s, man, if you were a backpacker, and you had a Sony A6000 and this uh, this front carry um, like binocular pack, you'd be really sad. That would be like all the camera bag that you'd need. In fact, really, if I'm thinking about ever doing some uh, like uh, over, you know, some longer backpacking travel where I just have to pack everything in and weight's going to be uh, something I'm more conscious of, then I think that's really like the way to go. As I've kind of been thinking about it a little bit, is like get a, get a lighter camera. Or, I mean, it'd be great to, like, carry, like, a 360 camera, you know, if you're going up somewhere. Like, those, are, those are almost nothing as it is anyway. But uh, but if you're carrying, like, an SLR or something that you want to try and do some some more controlled photography with, and you had something like a an A6000 from Sony or an A7, 7R3 or whatever it is, um, something that size with a lens attached to it, you know, that could fit in one of these binocular harnesses, harnesses and, and carry kind of right on your front. And then, oh, you see something, you want to take it? Pop that open right on your chest, pull it right up to your eye. It's got straps on it in the harness. Pull it right up to your eye, it's ready to shoot. And you can uh, take photos of it, or take photos, you know, as quick as you want to. So uh, it's kind of a, a cool process if you're out hiking a lot. For what I'm doing, I have my binocular harness, but it's got binoculars in it. And uh, I've been kind of going around, I've been trying to do some bird watching stuff while I'm out here. And uh, I saw a cool hawk that was posted up who was looking at me. That's about all I've seen so far. I saw a coyote the other day. That was cool. I'll talk about that later, though. But uh, uh, but so I have those binoculars in there, and I've, I've been kind of going out on these uh, these shorter hikes and stuff. But I've been trying to uh, go around and uh, like just kind of watch some stuff or watch the land and, and kind of keep an eye out. But uh, I just have the camera on my longer strap on my side uh, with that uh, 17 to 40 millimeter lens, and that's worked really good. And it's been a, a pretty flexible kit for me to to go around and take a bunch of photographs with. So. Pretty easy, pretty lightweight to work with, and I can uh, kind of move back and forth uh, between those things strapped around my neck. You know, it's not everything just hanging around my neck with a lanyard. It's all kind of uh, put somewhere or packed in somewhere. So that's been kind of cool. Uh, but it was good going out and taking some photos tonight. I was uh, trying to get some of the. I didn't. I didn't get anything lightning in the camera. Though. The lightning storm kind of passed as soon as it was getting really dark enough to uh, to do like a long exposure kind of thing where I could I could sort of catch. Something, uh, something sparking. Otherwise, you know, you gotta, you gotta beat the lightning bolt with your shutter finger, and that's a pretty tricky task to do. I think that's how they do it. You know, when you get those, uh, you get those like magazine photos back in the day of uh, uh, a powerful lightning bolt striking, I don't know, in the center of a road or something like that. That's what they'd show you. You know, some kind of uh, power lightning bolt. But uh, the way that they would do that stuff is, I think, I think it was like a, I think it was dark out. You know, or pretty dark out. And so they'd set the camera up for. Uh, just a cycle of long exposures, and then they would just kind of let it ride, you know? So they'd have uh, a couple seconds to expose the image to whatever, you know, would work, and then they would just kind of have that rolling so that when when a bolt of lightning did strike, and it would be captured, and you could go through that collection of captured, or, you know, how do I say that? When a lightning bolt would strike the ground, the camera 
would have already been exposing for a photograph because it's just cycling the shutter on a four second exposure, let's say something like that. Um, and so, you, you know, it takes a four second exposure, stops, processes for a second, takes a four second exposure, stops, processes for a second. So I think that's how they did some of that stuff where they'd, uh, they kind of anticipate, all right, it's been a couple of minutes, let's uh, take a frame now and then it's just going to be an event in the future, so we don't know if it's going to happen or not. We're going to wait for this event in the future when we, boom, see a lightning bolt, and then that light then exposes the sensor or the film and the camera, and then you're left with an image that has that lightning bolt represented in the frame when you're shooting on a tripod or something like that with uh, with a, like a short cycle, long exposure. And uh, I thought that was uh, pretty cool, but uh, I didn't really get a chance to, to get all that stuff set up before the uh, the storm kind of passed me by. I did get a lot of cool handheld stuff that was uh, that's great of the, the thunderheads and stuff. And really, unfortunately, just in the, the location that I'm at, a lot of the, and I guess maybe for the better, but uh, that lightning storm didn't pass right over my head. It was uh, still a little ways away, so I could see the lightning bolts cracking through the trees kind of out in the distance more. A few that, that stretched across the sky pretty good, too. It was just, you know, a big old, uh, you know, from, from east to west, it, it was like, you know, a big old chunk of a, a bolt that just crack all the way across the sky. It was cool. Um, so I got some photos of the thunderheads, the sunset, the, uh, the big field out here. It's cool. It's a nice area. Um, but I was also thinking about uh, some of the other stuff that I want to be doing tomorrow. So I'm out in the, the Fremont National Forest. I'm going to be heading, I think, maybe south from here, and I'm going to try and explore a couple areas that are still open. Um, or I, you know, I guess it's all open public land. This is like one of, uh, or a pretty large, contiguous section of, uh, of national forest land here. And, and really, like, that's a big part of Oregon overall, right? It's like 53% public lands. It's cool, yeah. If you look at a map, you'll see the cities, and you'll see like the highways and stuff. But uh, if you have the right map, it'll show you where the BLM land is and where the, the different national forests are. And it's cool. This whole area of the Northwest is, is uh, it's just, there's a lot of public land that you get to use, and uh, there's a lot of uh, open area that you get to go to. And, um, and yeah, now that I've got uh, a, a good map of uh, outdoor, off-road uh, roads and some of the terrain and stuff with uh, some good notes, and I'm able to kind of move around and, and uh, get out to a lot more places than I had before. So that's been cool. The app that I'm using is the OnX Off-Road app. It's, uh, I think, $29.99 a year. And uh, so I pitched that out, picked up this app, and then you can download offline these, uh, these really detailed off-road maps that are supposed to show you all the trails, you know, even just walking trails, all the roads, all of the, um, like, the pieces of information you'd need for kind of moving around in the backcountry. And, and really, as surprising as it is, as remote as a lot of these places are, uh, people go here, you know. It's, it's also public land that's managed by the, um, the forest department, forest, forest service? Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff's managed by the forest service, the BLM stuff's managed by the BLM, but that's why these roads are as good as they are or maintained or that's why like when trees are downed on these mountain roads you know someone has to go through at the beginning of the year and cut all those out rip them out fill in the potholes all that sort of stuff so all these areas are um are known about and you know kind of um managed you know in a pretty significant way in fact i think uh um, more so to come in the future i think they just have announced yesterday or the day before that they've passed the Great American Outdoors Act, which I really don't know the first thing about or um, or what it does or doesn't do or what it 
puts in or leaves out. But uh, I think part of my understanding is that it's supposed to change some of the funding mechanisms that go into supporting the, the maintenance of these public lands that are out here uh, across the country, but really significantly out here in the western states. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I think uh, before that it was like, well, we should spend uh, you know, X amount of money, but there's a more important place for that money to go. So it wasn't like a guaranteed amount. It's sort of what I understand. So if I understand it correctly, there's like, um, I think they've said $3 billion a year of mandated funding for projects, I think here in the backcountry. BLM land, forest service land, and uh, like national wildlife refuges and stuff. So uh, pretty cool. But yeah, I think that's going to, well, maybe we'll see a change in that. I think it's supposed to better fund the operations of, of BLM and forest service people as they're going through and, uh, and trying to get these areas ready for uh, for the public to be using more regularly. So it's cool. I think it, uh, it'll it mean a lot uh, over the next uh, few years, or we'll, maybe we'll see how it, how it kind of transforms um, some of the way that uh, these, uh, these, areas are managed i think maybe it's it's more for well you know i probably shouldn't even speculate i'm not sure at all but it's pretty cool i'm excited about uh being out here and doing some camping and stuff dealing with this uh thunderstorm i think it's one of those things where by the morning you know it's going to be uh or at least uh well i was looking at the weather it should be mostly cloudy or partly cloudy mostly sunny tomorrow for a while so i think that's pretty cool i'm excited to be hanging out doing some camping stuff doing some podcasting. I'm in the back of my truck right now. Like I was saying, it was uh, raining earlier after those thunderstorms, so I got that canopy on my truck, and I'm nice and dry, nice and warm. Uh, it kind of feels like I'm uh, I'm just inside somewhere. So it's uh, it's a cool cool rig having the four-wheel drive, having the canopy on the back, having your, your stuff and your sleeping area just kind of set up back there, and I'm ready to go. So I've been having a good time being out here, and uh, I don't know. It's been uh, pretty good pretty good trip so far so i appreciate you guys checking out this uh podcast from me i'm gonna do a couple more podcasts while i'm out here on this camping trip and i'll uh i'll try and try and set up a, a little backlog of them on my website i think it'll be a a good idea i know i kind of take big breaks and stuff from it i'm sure no one uh no one keeps listening when it, when it is there but hey if you listen to this end of the podcast shoot me an email time for the plugs it's uh billy newmanphoto.com if you want to check out my website see some of my photographs check out uh, more podcasts that i've done or books that i've uh, tried to put together which is uh, maybe what i'm going to try and do out here too i'm going to try and get some photographs for another good book You can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com you can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. I wanted to talk today about some stuff that I've been doing this last week. For the last few weeks, I've been talking about some outdoor stuff and some things kind of related to the the lockdown, pandemic stuff. But 
I might kind of change uh, change what I was talking about a little bit for this podcast. What I wanted to get into was uh, some of the training stuff I've been looking into around Logic Pro 10.5 that has uh, just come out recently, and I thought it'd be kind of uh, kind of cool to go over a little bit of an overview of some of the new features and stuff that are there, and, and some of the stuff that you can do with uh, a digital audio workstation, and uh, and why why I'd bother talking about it. But I think it was about about a year ago or so. I was talking about setting up the studio in the house that I'm at here and how I was getting a, a PC computer ready to go. It was an older one. It was, I think, like a, I don't know, something from some desktop I had around from, from 2010 or 11 or so. Yeah. Yeah, about that time. And I remember um, getting that computer set up with, a, I think it was, yeah, I had like Windows 10 on it. And then I was using, I think, the same audio interface. USB out into the computer, and then I had downloaded, um, I had downloaded Sonar, the new version of Sonar that you can get for free. I think it had been owned by what well, was Cakewalk Sonar, and then I think Gibson had bought out Cakewalk, and so it became Gibson Sonar. And then I think Gibson decided that wasn't going to be part of their business anymore, and so I think they just kind of shut it down, essentially. But then sold that off to BandLab. And BandLab is a, I think, a, well, I don't know, it's another internet company. They have kind of a simplified digital audio workstation app that you can use uh, to kind of create a demo or something like that. But what they had done is they'd, they'd gone through, I guess, and had purchased probably for a relatively inexpensive price, I, or I don't know, I assume, since they're just uh, they're just keeping it and kind of hardly maintaining it or you know, doing a bit to maintain it. Uh, but they took the, the Sonar Platinum program, the full digital audio workstation uh, multi-tracking tool and they made it free for people to use and for people to get uh, but I think it's only a, a Windows only program so you gotta have uh, you gotta have Windows 10 to uh, to run it so I did that yeah and uh, and Sonar was a program that I had worked with before uh, for doing some some studio multi-tracking stuff I think years ago probably around like 2012 2013 when I was uh, when I was working with some friends to set up uh, some studio equipment stuff it was cool. We had like a big uh, Soundcraft ghost that was laid out, and then we had a bunch of um, a bunch of channels kind of running into that from from the microphones that we were using to track this band. And then that all went into a pretty old computer. It was amazing what it could do, you know, for just a you know it was probably like a two gigabyte of RAM, you know, smaller hard drive, two thousand four, five, six era PC computer. No, I probably wouldn't even need that much, right? There's something about that time. But that's what we used. Yeah, that's like all we had. All we had with us. We had a, I think it was like a PreSonus um, audio interface, and then we got like like an eight channel audio interface. That was really cool. You know, we had like eight eight digital audio channels coming into the the interface, which means we could track eight live channels into sonar at a time, and uh, it didn't even hiccup. You know, even on that old machine. And so uh, it was interesting how that, that architecture worked to do some editing stuff, but. Uh, uh, sonar is what I had been using before uh, for some stuff. Really, Audition, Adobe Audition is what I'd used most for some of this kind of the more simple uh, radio broadcast style stuff. And that's what I had learned to use when I was at um, when I was at a radio station doing an internship years and years ago, back in two thousand eight. Right, summer of two thousand eight, I did that, and they used Adobe Audition version one point five to uh, to do all of their uh, radio production edits and uh, yeah, I remember I remember going in taking calls with the, the production guy. I don't know somebody calling in to do like a 
I think they would do like a water level report. It was really interesting radio on that station. You know, you could figure. But uh, they would have like this, uh, I don't know, something, you know, it's it's 1245 and here's your local water level report for July 28th or something. And then it would be some lady that would call in um, from a department that would measure this stuff. And she would give her water report and the production guy, you'd record it and then produce that. And then it'd be prepped to go out on air later you know it was like a spot that uh, a dj would trigger upstairs and so we would kind of walk through using audition to do those steps and so learning that as a program was probably the first one that i had done um which I probably, I probably goes back to high school or before that when i was doing editing stuff but but sonar um back to sonar was uh, some of the stuff that i'd used probably a good bit more for the um for the music you know like trying to like track a band or do like multi-tracking projects but uh um, so yeah, that's what I'd used a bit. That's why I'd thrown on this Windows 10 PC to do some audio production stuff for this podcast workflow that I was uh, trying to get into. And uh, it's cool; it works really well. But uh, but I stopped using that computer a while ago. I think the uh, the, the Windows 10 computer that I'm talking about had uh, a power supply go bad, which could be replaced pretty easily, and, and uh, is on a to do list of mine. But since then, I've really just been relying on kind of like I'd mentioned, um, just recording recording onto the device and then uh, using Adobe Audition to do the uh, post-production work on my MacBook, which uh, is, I don't know, it's just, a, it's just a more, it's just a better workflow and stuff for the, for the most part. So I've been kind of sticking with that. But recently, to get to the point, as you are all excited, uh, Logic Pro 10.5 has come out. Now, Logic, as yet to be mentioned in this podcast, Logic Pro is the program that was produced by Apple as their professional digital audio workstation. And so there's GarageBand, which probably a lot of people have some experience with. And GarageBand is sort of the trimmed down, simplified um, home user version of a program like, like Logic Pro. And, and they've done that intentionally. I think it's the same team that generates the two programs. And if you, if you look at them or you look at their interfaces and you look at their, the, the types of access that you have to things, you, you really do see a, a familiar similarity to it, which is cool. Um, so if you've used something like GarageBand in the past for home projects, you, you won't really have as big of a, a, a difficulty moving into a more professional digital audio workstation environment like Logic Pro 10. I think it was Logic Pro 10, just, you know, 10-0. It came out, well, I don't know, probably like 2013 or so. And I think that was uh, that was sold for 200 bucks. So it was like a, a purchase price of 199 And then since then, you get the point updates for free um, or, you know, as included with your original purchase. Uh, so just recently, I, I think there had been like 10.4 before this, and then now they've moved on to 10.5. And 10.5, I think, is probably the biggest, uh, as noted by you know plenty of news sources, um, as noted as, uh, as one of the most significant uh, feature updates that Logic has had probably in, in years and years. I mean, I think this is the first time that they've gone through and removed and updated some of those legacy items that have been in there since, I don't know, 2003 or four or five. You know, it was just some of these legacy products that were, um, that were originally put in there, is including their interfaces too. It looks like a 2002 interface for, uh, for you know, like there's these synthesizer interfaces where there's these weird knobs that you have to, these weird just rotating features of the interface. It looks like, it looks ridiculous. I don't know how there were any other way to explain it, <laughs> but it's a, uh, it's pretty wild for some of the some of the stuff that's just remained in computer uh, computer systems for a long time. But for 10.5, they try to go through and update a lot of that stuff, um, and it's 
really uh, interesting. There's a lot of cool new features in Logic 10.5. So Logic is real similar to Sonar, which is, I guess, kind of why I mentioned it. And at least through my experience, it's similar. You guys would probably think it's similar to... I don't know what people that are listening probably actually have some. Well, <laughs> no one's listening. What am I saying? Um, if someone were to bother to try and find some information out about Logic and they ended up listening to this podcast, they'd probably have had some information about it or they would be coming from, uh, from an experience with uh, Avid's Pro Tools. And uh, Pro Tools is like the industry standard for multi-tracking DAW software. And I've never used it. I've never opened Pro Tools. I've never seen... Pro Tools, you know, in in its process at all. Um, I've, I don't know. I've, I've looked at a couple of videos or something, but yeah, I have no I have no experience working in Pro Tools, um, and I don't know. I'm not a fan of, of Avid's software overall. You know, for Pro Tools uh, or for uh, or for the Avid system of, uh, of video editing stuff either. I'm just I'm not I'm not really. Uh, that interested in the, the kind of stuff that they put together, um, and it, really for price and stuff too. It just seems kind of kind of over overdone a little bit. So, uh, so I'm pretty happy with uh, with some of the other the other more available tools that are in the consumer computer market. I mean, I think it's like 800 bucks or something still to get uh, to get Avid's Pro Tools, and I think that in the past it was just you know insanely more than that. Even with you know kind of proprietary back in the past it was more difficult. Now I think M Audio is a partner with Pro Tools, and so uh, in the past if you had Pro Tools, you'd have a lot of proprietary Pro Tools audio interfaces that you had to use um, if you wanted to set up your studio to work seamlessly with the Pro Tools uh, software. Um, now I think they've made a deal with M audio, which is, um, sort of like a, a less expensive audio interface manufacturer. They've had like uh, interfaces and microphones and, uh, you know, they, they've got like an array of, I think they've got like some studio monitors. They've got some interfaces. They've got, uh, like keyboards is a big one that they've got. I've got a keyboard over here from M audio and what is it? Yeah. M audio, they're less expensive. They make Pro Tools uh, interfaces, which is cool uh, now, so that they've got a partnership with Pro Tools. And I think that they've been trying to make that more accessible to musicians, probably because it's become a more competitive market with, um, well, really with like Logic, Logic Pro. I think I think the industry standard stuff is, uh, I don't know, it always seems like more secure than it should be. Or, you know, it doesn't it doesn't seem like an absolute that Pro Tools should be the uh, the digital audio workstation of of engineers across the world, but for whatever reason, it's just kind of taken over. And and as those people, you know, are still still in those positions, I think that's uh, that's just what's taught in audio recording school. It's like a standard, uh, even though there's a lot of other good other good services and choices out there. I think I've seen Sonar and Logic taught a lot too. So I don't know. They're they're definitely competitive. And, and as I've been hearing more. There's, there's, I don't know, there's produce, you know, music producers that are coming out saying, oh yeah, I do a lot of, a lot of my work in, in Logic. And, and there's, you know, there's a whole class of music producers that are Logic based producers or Sonar based producers or, I don't know, it seems to kind of rotate around every couple of years for, for who's doing what or, you know, who wants to look cool. People that use Pro Tools want to look cool probably a lot of the time. Um, so back to, back to old uh, Logic Pro 10.5. Here's the good stuff. So. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. A few new things up there. Some stuff on the homepage. Some good links to other other outbound sources. Some, some links to books. Some links to some podcasts. Links to some blog posts. 
all pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at billynewmanaphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.